Good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 12, 2017. The share ID for Friday, February 10th, is 9588. That's 9588. This morning, A Vision for You presents A New World Came into View. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us. We have a profound alteration in our attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward the world around us as a result of our new spiritual condition. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of our lives, are now cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions, ideas, and attitudes begin to dominate us. We are changed in the way we think. We are changed in the way we feel. And we are changed especially in the way we behave. The 12 steps take us to a place we've never been, into a spiritual way of life, where a new world comes into view. Joining us today is Lisa B., a recovered compulsive overeater from South Carolina. Lisa is an active participant on A Vision for You, and she's here to share her personal story of transformation with all of us today. Welcome to you, Lisa. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes, very well. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lisa B., and I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, and I feel really um, grateful and thrilled to be here this morning and to share my message. I feel just really happy. Um, So when Leah asked me to share and to think of a topic, um, I asked her to suggest some, some headings, you know, just to get me started, and I liked the heading of A New World Came Into View, and That is mentioned in Bill's story on page 12, and this is what Bill says. He says, thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. So before I talk about my old world, what it was like, I just want to also touch on another thing that Bill says on page 13. He says, my friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. And of course, he's talking about the steps when these things were done. He says that I would have the elements of a way of living, which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility. Oops, there we go. um, To establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Well, that's why I'm so grateful here this morning because I can talk about these new order of things. I'm just very thrilled about that. And then on page 100, one of my favorite promises in the big book, it says, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. 
So I just want to say welcome to the newcomer. And my prayer this morning is that I be useful and helpful and share a message that will reach someone and give them hope. Um, so um, I was born in 1963 in northern New Jersey. And uh, when I was ver- from a very, very young age, I've just always been aware of an emptiness inside of me. I felt very raw and unsure how to be. Um, I did naturally seek out uh, some power greater than myself from a young age. No one taught me, but I just, I felt like I was uh, grasping for for life rafts ever since I was very small, and I would often close my eyes and ask for some some power, some presence to come and take care of me and guide me. And I felt the nearness of this presence throughout my life. Um, but the thing that for me that happened, you know, becoming a compulsive overeater, and I refer to myself as an addict, but my true drug of no choice has always been the food. Um, but I am an addict of the food that I tried to work apart from God, my higher power. That's who I call my higher power, God. I tried to make my own plans, my arrangements without reference to my higher power. And I also believe truly that I would be happy and successful by doing anything in my higher power's will. So the problem was I wanted to work apart from God. And as an addict, that is truly a death sentence. And even though I felt a, a calling, you know, if you want to use that word, towards this presence that always was there for me, guiding me, um, I always felt like I certainly don't want to, I don't want to do exactly what this power wants me to do, but if you'll just be there and catch me when I need you, you know, and I just wanted my higher power to come into just certain areas of my life, but not everything. So my mom was an airline stewardess for Ozark Airlines in Missouri, and my father was a salesman from Boston, and that's how he met my mother. He was flying on one of her flights, and they married. And um, I have an older brother, Steve, who's five years older than me, and another older brother, Jeff, who's three years older, and then my sister, Lori, which is what we used to call her, but now she wants to be called Laura, so Laura, six years younger. And um, we lived in New Jersey. And, you know, I just remember being born, my eyes opening, and then all around me is struggle, noise, and trauma. Um, The TV played constantly the Vietnam War. There were race riots. There were marches. And I really was frightened by all of that. Um, I know a lot of people just, like, lived with it, but it really, really scared me. And I thought for sure that all these things that I saw on the TV were horrible, horrible things, and that it was eventually going to come into my home. And um, I used to walk downtown in my small little town in in northern New Jersey, and um, the hippies were all there on these picnic benches at this little town center that we had. And I really liked talking to hippies. And um, my mom would drive by, and she would open the car window, and she'd say, get away from the hippies. You know, stop talking to the the hippies. But I I felt like um, they... They just were the ones that I enjoyed talking to the most, even though they were older than me. Um, And when I was home, there was still a lot of uh, chaos and and drama. Um, I remember my mom would wake me up when I was in elementary school for breakfast and to get going in the morning, and Elvis Presley would be playing on the stereo. That was the music that she and my dad liked, and that was the music from their, their era, their dating period. And I really liked the music. It was happy. And I saw my mom was happy. But that that was not going to stay like that. You know, things became very, very difficult for all of us. 
But um, <clears throat> my older brothers were having learning disabilities in school, and they were very reactive, um, especially my older brother, Steve, to sugar. And he had a definite personality change whenever he ingested sugar. And um, so the, the person at the school told my mother to make very good quality breakfast, you know, for all of us with lots of protein so that our blood sugar wouldn't be messed up. And um, that was just the beginning for me. I've always been very reactive to food and especially to sugars um, and starches. And I would probably have a strong personality change like I saw my brother did too. And when I went to school, um, I would have great drops in my blood sugar. And my mother used to send me with a thermos of orange juice. And um, I would have to stop and have orange juice in the middle of the school morning. But in the cafeteria, there were these chocolate chip cookies that were incredible. I just couldn't believe them. They were really greasy and the perfect size that I could just, like, cram them in my mouth. And I would just fill up on those. And um, that's, you know, that was the beginning for me. I just loved what food, mostly sugar, did for me. It numbed me. And it helped me with the fears, you know, that I felt growing up. And um, I just was a very fearful child and jumpy. And I don't know why. I don't know why I was like that, but I was. And that's, I think, why I started retreating inside. And I used to climb this tree in my backyard, and I would go up there and just talk to God, you know. And I did feel that presence around me of God, of, of, a, of a comfort. Well, as I grew and uh, went through school, and um, my oldest brother really dominated the house. He got very, very heavily into drugs. And that Elvis Presley music, that was no longer playing. You know, now it was all of his music, um, you know, Led Zeppelin and all of his stuff was playing in the house. And my parents would go out sometimes, and my brothers, both of them, would have these huge parties. I mean, just all of these grown men, you know, coming into our house with my sister and I, and they were just doing all kinds of drugs, you know, in the house. And my sister and I would just hide in one of the bedrooms with our two cats. And sometimes there would be a babysitter there, but the, that just didn't do anything. I don't think the babysitter, you know, did anything. Um, so that was really scary. Um, I started having problems in school, too. It wasn't really a learning disability. I just wasn't able to retain information and keep up. And um, later on in life, you know, I went back to school as an adult, and I did incredible. It was just amazing. So it just showed me that it was that trauma growing up. And I lived on a steady diet of sugar. I mean, I started stealing candy from the drugstore, um, you know, when I would walk home from school, and I would just fill up on that. And I know a lot of it was definitely a mood effect from the sugar. Um, but, you know, when I got into eighth grade, the, the teachers started talking to my parents, and they were like, you know, Lisa really is not doing well in school. I barely got into ninth grade. And if I had stayed in New Jersey with my family, I probably would have been kept back. But at that time, um, we were going to be moving down to South Florida, and um, I'll go into that in a second. But something really key happened for me. I had my very first drink of alcohol when I was about 14. And, you know, it wasn't until I had that drink that I knew that I felt like such crap all the time. But when I had that drink, it was wine, 
um, that voice, you know, that, that higher power voice for the very first time spoke to me in a very clear way. And that's kind of a theme through my story because um, I've had other instances where that voice talked to me. And I had my drink of wine with my friend Irene and um, Danny, and I can't remember the name of the other guy, in this old car in someone's backyard. And I, the lights went off. Something clicked in my head. I felt okay. I felt okay. It was an amazing feeling. And I grabbed my friend Irene's arm, and I was asking her if she had that same experience, and she said no. I felt not afraid. You know, I felt like I could talk and interact, and I could react to someone's joke and not feel like an idiot. And um, Well, that voice spoke to me, and it said to me, Lisa, this is going to be a very big problem for you. It could be the death of you. And I, I just knew, even though I had never come across like an alcoholic or the term alcoholic, it was like I knew instinctively that this would kill me if I continued drinking it. Um, I went home. I got home and I was sick as a dog. I ran through the house like just about ready to throw up. And one of the rare occasions, my dad was home. And he was talking to my mom in the kitchen. And they weren't arguing but they were having a very serious talk about my brother, Steve. Apparently the police had just come to the house that day and my dad had to work frantically to get rid of all these drugs and dispose of them so they would not arrest my brother. And my dad was just so upset about it and this problem that my brother, Steve, was having. And my dad, you know, saw me come running through the house drunk and they grabbed me and they said, did you do drugs? You know, they were so afraid that I was going to do drugs. I said, no, no, it's alcohol. And they said, oh, okay, just go in the room and, you know, go to bed. And I didn't go to school that day, and they let me sleep it off. And, you know, every time I drank alcohol, um, until I stopped drinking alcohol, I would throw up. And that's exactly what happened to me that day. But, um, you know, my dad was a heavy drinker, but I don't know if he was an alcoholic. I just know that my mom used to say to me, don't talk to your dad until he has his martinis. You know, then he'll feel better. So that's what I know about my dad, but I don't know if he was an alcoholic. And I didn't have another drink until I was about 19 or 20, but I stayed with the food. You know, like I said, food has always been my true drug of no choice. Well, we loaded up our cars and we drove in a caravan from New Jersey down to South Florida. And I started in a small high school and I did not have to repeat the ninth grade. They let me, it was a really un unusual school, they let me do ninth grade and 10th grade together. <laughs> so I was able to graduate with my, my normal regular time schedule. But that was a horrible, horrible time. My mom calls it the decade of hell. Um, we moved down to Florida. And by the way, I really enjoyed that drive down to Florida with my brother. I rode with him in his um, Pinto that he had put a V8 engine in. and um, I really enjoyed that time with him. I was closest to him. When he wasn't on drugs, um, he was just the nicest person. And even when he was on drugs, often he was nice. He was just a very down-to-earth, um, sincere, kind person. Um, but when we got down to Florida, a bunch of things happened. Uh, one, um, my mom found out that my dad had been having a very long-term affair and um, with a woman he eventually married. And she became pretty much bedridden. Um, she couldn't get out of bed. And um, she confided in me that she would take her life if it wasn't for my younger sister. And when I would go to, go to school 
you know, I was terrified that I would come home and find her dead because I knew that she was suicidal, but she didn't tell anyone else in the family. And she would just go on these, like, sessions of wailing and crying um, where no one could do anything to console her. And my brother Jeff would come up and get me in the middle of the night and say, you know, mom's crying. And I would just go and sit with her and try and comfort her. But the crying, it was so horrible to hear, especially as a child, hearing their parent cry, because it was deep, deep wails, like coming from the core of her being that was just like a lifetime of pain, you know. And um, that was really, really hard. Also, um, so my dad moved out. My brothers started biting violently, mostly Steve. Um, He just would have this rage that would come over him. And he would start pounding the crap out of my other brother, Jeff, and like chairs would go flying, furniture would be thrown, glass would be broken, and they're big guys. We could not break them apart. It was just my mother, my sister, and I. And often I would go and hide behind the couch with my sister or put her in the bedroom with her cat and my cat, turn music on for her, and I would sit there and pray with her. Um, Other times my mother would just get suddenly this like unbelievable strength and get out of the bed, you know, and pull them apart and then go back into her bed. Or sometimes their friends would be over and um, be able to pull them apart. But it was terrible because Jeff didn't want to fight. And it just was a real, very violent, very violent fight. Um, So that was like my high school years, you know, fun, fun times, good times. And um, I definitely turned to the food for sure. Um, big bags of M&Ms, you know, those big, huge, giant bags. I became known for that, and my friends in school would get me those, you know, for Christmas presents. Um, And, you know, that's just, high school was just a blur. It was a very depressing time um, in our household. And my brother's drug problem became worse and worse, and he was passed out on the couch most of the time. And um, somehow we came through that, and... uh, I went away to college. I went down to Miami, and uh, that's when my drinking kicked in again. But this is another key moment in my uh, compulsive overeating. I met my new college roommate, and she said, that, now this is the thing. You know, it says in the big book, we can't tell the like truth from reality or true from false. And I, this is how my memory is of what happened, but I don't know if it's exactly what happened. But I went to go meet her. And we decided we were going to be roommates together. And um, later on, you know, I went to the pool at this place where we were going to be living in my bathing suit. And she says to me, oh, you look really good in your clothes, but in your bathing suit, you look so out of shape and flabby. And oh, my gosh, that just devastated me. Um, it, It set me off on my real exercise mania. And um she she introduced me to going to these gyms and these cardio classes and the step classes and she was a real exercise fiend and um I picked up on that and joined in with her. But something else happened to me when I got to college. Um I became anorexic. So, you know, binging I'd never really had a true, true binge the way I did later on, you know, before I went to college. I just was a constant grazer. And I'm five foot ten, so I don't really show weight a lot. Um, and my mom every now and then would comment, you know, she would say, oh, you need to go out and ride your bike more, you know, do some more exercise, that kind of thing. Um, but when I got to college, the major restricting kicked in and the exercise, and that's how I managed. 
um, my compulsive overeating. I restricted, exercised, and my goal was to always try and be a minimum of five pounds under my goal weight, which my goal weight was already too thin to begin with, um, so that I would always have leeway for the food. And um, that's what I did through college. And like high school, I barely got through college by the skin of my teeth. A lot of drinking and a lot of heavy, heavy eating and major exercise addiction. And my friend Irene from New Jersey came to visit me. She was a real eating buddy. You know, she kept up with me in the way I ate. But when she saw the way I drank, you know, she said, wow, you really, really are drinking a lot. Um, But anyway, so graduated college and uh, you know I used to before I graduated I would come home on weekends and stay with my mom and uh, my brother would be there Steve would be there and you know he his life was really going down the drain he didn't have a regular place to live and every now and then I'd see him there with her and he would be crying and he would say mom I just can't stop I don't know what to do I want to stop but I can't his drug of no choice with cocaine and um, he was desperate and so scared and my mom was just terrified didn't know what to do you know for him or about him and I graduated college and you know lived with my mom for a while with my brother and my sister and of course that was so depressing and I moved out well then the next level happened for me with my food and you know I know we hear one of our co-fellows on our meeting share that, you know, we eat because of the buildup of human emotion. Well, my whole life has been, you know, a buildup of human emotion. Well, seeing my brother get like that in the way it was just controlling the family, um, because now he started, you know, breaking into my other brother's house, stealing from him, and he would be um, hallucinating. You know, he would just be hallucinating and threaten us, and he was just crazy, a crazy, crazy person. So I moved out. And um, the only way I could cope, you know, was to eat, eat, eat. But my binges took on like this whole other scale where I literally could not stop. One day I could not stop making peanut butter toast. And I called my mom. You know, I didn't really have many friends at all. I was so consumed with myself and I was also compulsively shopping. And whenever I drank, I drank excessively and I was a sloppy drunk. Um, I only had like uh, temporary relationships, you know, with these guys that I would date, but nothing serious. So I really was an isolator. And I was compulsively exercising. You know, I'd get up at like 3 or 4 in the morning and walk crazy distances, you know, 5 or 7 miles in the dark, you know, putting myself in harm's way. So I called my mom and I was like, Mom, you've got to come over here and help me. So she came over. And she said, what's the matter? And I said, I cannot stop eating peanut butter toast. And she said, oh, my gosh, that's how your brother is with cocaine. And that was the first awareness for me that, wow, maybe this is, you know, a disease like addiction. So I went to the bookstore, started studying up and reading, and none of it helped, you know. And I was at that time working for my dad, and my binges became closer together. It used to just be on the weekend, but now it was like, you know, one time during the week. Now, you know, all the time during the week. And then I would call in sick and just the remorse. And I felt like this thing was around my neck. I, I started going into churches. I'm, we didn't have a church, you know, that I was really brought up in. But I would go into churches on Saturdays and I would pray. 
And sometimes I would take communion. I'm not Catholic, but I just liked the feeling. I would sometimes confide in the pastor that I didn't know or the priest. And I would say, you know, can you pray with me? And they would say, well, what specifically? And I would never tell them, but I just said, I really need help. And I prayed and prayed and prayed. Well, my brother had gone in and out of maybe his like fifth or sixth treatment center. And I used to go in and visit him, you know, sometimes when he would be in these treatment centers and I would see him when he was all cleaned up. But then, you know, I would uh, see him again later on and I would smell pot, you know, in the bathroom at my mother's house. Or one time I went, uh, you know, to a party at his house and I saw him, you know, going into the bathroom to do cocaine. And I tried to grab him by the shoulder and tell him he didn't have to do that to please. Oh, and that's the other time the voice, the voice spoke to me again, you know, and it said um, that he'll die from that. You know, and he did. He did eventually die from it. Um, So anyways, he was now in another treatment center, and he was out, and he was clean. And um, I'll just take a little sidetrack here. I went to my very first OA meeting, and it was my last OA meeting until um, A Vision for You in 2015. But I went to this OA meeting, and I was so scared to go. I asked my sister to go with me. And... um, it was the most depressing experience I ever had. There were like four women in there. They were all a lot older. They're the age that I am now. And I was, they were all a lot more overweight than I was because I didn't really show the weight. And um, I heard no hope. I heard no hope. They were so depressed. And no one there was recovered. And I don't even know what they were talking about. And even my sister commented, like, what was that about? I said, I don't know. I don't know. So I went home depressed, and I was like, God, you know, what am I going to do? Well, ta-da, really, really big thing that is just so wonderful happened for me. My brother Steve, when I used to go visit him at his halfway house, he said, Lisa, I'm going to be picking up my nine-month chip, and I'd really like it if you would come and support me. Because at that time, you know, the family had just had it. They did not want to have anything to do with him except my mom. Everyone was just burned out from him. And I said, I would love to go. This is a really big thing for me, really, really big. It was New Year's Eve, um, and it was 1986. And uh, that's when they were celebrating for that month, the end of the month. And I went to my very first AA meeting. And it was at this huge place in Delray Beach, Florida. There were probably about 150 people in there. And I walked in there, oh my gosh, I was blown away. There was so much hope. There was peace. There was laughter. So many hands were extended towards me, you know, wanting to shake my hand, wanting to welcome me. But not only that, when I looked in people's eyes, especially my brother's sponsor, um, he had like this light in his eyes. My brother's sponsor had a light in his face. And I sat next to my brother in the meeting. My brother was different. I was sitting next to him, and he was different. He was calm. He was peaceful. He had hope. And I listened to the shares in this meeting, and I identified, even though I never really identified myself at that time as an alcoholic, I identified with the food. And that was my intention. When he asked me to go with him, I thought, you know, maybe... I can apply in AA, you know, hope for my compulsive overeating and binging. Um, So 
So, and that's what I tried to do when I was listening in that meeting. I looked, what can I identify with? And I identified with so much, you know. And I was just like almost coming out of the chair. I was so happy, so happy. And you know what? I wanted what they had. I wanted, I must have what they have. That's what I said to myself. And I said to my brother, I am so happy for you. You know, I am so happy for you. And I said to him, hold on to this. This sounds like in uh, Bill's story, you know, when Dr. Silkworth said that to Bill. That's what I said to my brother. Hold on to this. You know, listen to your sponsor. Stay close to them. And I, I looked at the steps on the wall, you know, and that was my first experience, you know, reading the steps on the wall. But I didn't get that it really has to be experienced, you know, not just read. They really have to truly be experienced. Well, I went out that night on a date. I had my vodka and tonics. And, um, you know, I did pick up a white shift that night at the meeting. But that's just because I wanted to fit in and everyone would clap when someone would go up and get a white chip and I wanted them to clap for me. Um, but I went out that night. But my life was changed from that moment on. You know, um, I told my date where I had been and he goes, well, why are you drinking? And I said, oh, well, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic. But something came into my mind and I did see that I really was an alcoholic. Um, and I saw that I'm also powerless over the food. It all kind of happened for me kind of quickly, and I kept going to the AA meetings. But my food, my eating became worse and worse and worse. I mean, just my car was unbelievable. It was this major binge mobile. That's where I would do all my binging. I would just go through drive throughs and go through convenience stores. And my sister one time, you know, saw my car, and she's like, look at your car. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I even started smoking cigarettes. I later found out that they laced the cigarettes, you know, with sugar. Well, I said to my mom, I've got to go to a treatment center. And I saw how it worked for my brother. So through a lot of prayer and work, I found a treatment center. But my higher power found a treatment center. And I went on the other coast of Florida. And I was standing in this treatment center to be checked in. And um, I said, you know, I don't want to be like my brother and go in and out of these treatment centers, in and out of these treatment centers. And I was praying you know, what do I need to do? And this woman was standing in front of me and she said, have you been to a place like this before? And I said, no. And she answered my prayer. She said, do you know what you need to do so that you never have to come back here again? And I said, what? And she said, you have to listen like a dying person would listen. And I got chills, you know, and now I know that that's in the big book. And I did. I listened like a dying person. And they taught me about the allergy of the body. You know, that I react, just like an alcoholic to alcohol, that I react to my alcoholic foods. And they had a food plan, and it got me off of all of my big triggers. And guess what? I got abstinent for five years, but I lived in abstinence only. I never, I never learned that I had to have a spiritual awakening that would be sufficient to bring about a personality change. I was a truly dry drunk, dry, compulsive overeater. I kept going to AA meetings and I got a sponsor. And even though I was comfortable identifying myself as an alcoholic, um, you know, and I was comfortable seeing that I'm a food addict, I didn't have talk to someone that ha- whom the problem had been solved that had the same malady as me. And I tried to do a fourth step, you know, but I will tell you that my AA sponsor, and it worked for her, it just didn't work for me. Um, 
she had me do a fourth step like by an autobiography, you know, and I stopped there. I never went into my amends. She never, you know, pointed it out to me in the big book. We worked out of the 12 and 12 a lot and, and eventually she stopped going to meetings and um, I followed suit, you know, that's all I knew. So I stopped going to meetings and I thought, well, since I met this man that loves me, that I eventually married, that I felt like my problems were solved. I really did. I thought, I'm okay. And um, I, I just became sicker because I wasn't eating. I became sicker and even more dysfunctional. And, um, you know, my poor husband, who I'm still now married to, um, I'm married, um, well, we got married in 1993. I was five years absent, you know, when I met him and married him. And about, I would say, after being married about two years, guess what I did? I started going to the mall to get Mrs. Fields chocolate chip cookies, you know, and I would start baking cookies on the weekends. And um, I worked for my dad. I went back to work for him, and I started stealing from my father thousands of dollars to try and maintain an appearance so I could buy hair extensions, designer handbags, and really nice clothes, you know. And that's what I did, and I lived like that um, for a really long time. I, we moved, my husband and I moved here to South Carolina in 2005. Um, I was still doing that, you know, when we moved here in 2005. And uh, I became very, I don't know if I want to say codependent with my husband, because it wasn't anything he did. I totally abandoned myself. And I expected him to be like the total caretaker of me in my life. And uh, I just started abandoning myself. I became so separated off from my true, my truth inside of me. And I got very sick, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Well, the sugar was just killing me. And thank God, you know, my higher power spoke to me and said, Lisa, you have got to get off of the sugar. And I did. By the grace of God, I got off the sugar. Um, but I wasn't super clean about it. If I went to restaurants, I would get a chicken stir-fry dish, which I knew had sugar in it. But when I said get off the sugar, I just meant I didn't go to the store and buy candy bars or bake cookies anymore. Um, you know, so I wasn't really hypervigilant about it. But um, my body started to break down. And I believe it's because, you know, I was dying inside because me as an addict, my truth is I need to be in alignment with my higher power or I will die. That's just the way I'm made. And that's what started to happen to me. And um, I'll just take a little sidetrack here. My brother um, had a heart attack. He died in his bed. And um, I don't know if he picked up a drug, you know, or not. Um, he was supposedly clean for 10 years. Um, my last conversation with him, I was with my husband, and it was right after we had gotten married, and um, my brother, who I, I love very, very much, I was closest to him, he stood out in his driveway, and he still had a halfway house that he, he, like, he owned, and he let these other guys, you know, stay there. That's how he had them pay the rent and everything. Um, he looked at me, and he said, oh, you and your husband look so nice together. And I knew he was lonely. You know, he was having a really hard time meeting someone. He had a very hard time in life, but he never got recovered. He never got these steps. You know, he made only a beginning. He made only a beginning. 
and uh, I saw the emptiness in him, and I saw the pain, and he said something to me. He said, Lisa, you know, you're courageous. You're courageous. I don't have that courage. And I tried to comfort him and um, say, you do. You know, you do, and things will get better. And I didn't have an understanding of the steps then to share with him. I wasn't recovered. He didn't have someone around him to take him through the steps. He didn't, he didn't want to. He had his sponsor, but I don't think he was willing. So anyways, he died shortly after that. And, um, you know, I found out that he had a heart defect that never was treated. And I later found out I was born with that same heart defect. But, you know, the cocaine just beat the crap out of him. And it's like my cardiologist said to me, well, I guess anyone that, you know, does cocaine, it beats the crap out of their heart. But if you have a heart defect, it makes it so much worse. You know, I had that same heart defect. And every time I went to a doctor, you know, they'd say, you need to go to a cardiologist. But me, you know, being the arrogant person I was, I wouldn't listen. I just wouldn't listen. So here I was here in South Carolina, isolated just with my husband and uh, my job and coming home and really being... uh, a terrible person. I had stolen all that money over the years from my dad and I just had so many things that were not complete in my life. And uh, anyways, I started getting really sick and weak, weak. I felt so bad. And the whole left side of my body like got atrophied. Um, I had no strength from my foot up to my shoulder. It was the most bizarre thing. And I got new insurance and I went to an internist and you know, I said to her, I just feel terrible. And she, I said, you know, what is it with my foot? And she said, I'm not interested in your foot at all. You need to go to a cardiologist right away. Anyways, um, I had to get, you know, open heart surgery. I had a thing wrong with my heart. And I was so scared. And I finally, thank God, started going back to AA meetings. I started feeling a semblance of um, sanity coming back to me. You know, it was just by the grace of God that I didn't pick up a drink, and that for whatever reason, I don't know why, my binges were not like they were before I went to treatment, and that's just God's grace. But that that's going to change, and I'll tell you what happened. So I went, I had the heart surgery, and I had a great recovery and a wonderful surgeon, and I got back going to AA meetings to hear the truth, you know, to hear the solution again about these steps. But you know, I never experienced being truly recovered. And I never experienced entire abstinence because even when I had abstinence from the treatment center, I would be very flimsy with it. I would go out and have salad dressings that have sugar, you know, and I was very, very flimsy with it. So anyways, I'm standing in this meeting hall here in Greenville and this wonderful woman, you know, shares with me about a vision for you And here's me, my denial. I'm thinking, oh, I used to have a problem with food. I don't anymore. That's just the depth of my denial. But that little voice came back and it said to me, Lisa, you need to listen to this because your binges are going to be far worse than they ever were before you went to treatment. And this is what I know what was happening to me and what happened to me. I swam way out to the so deep, deep end of the ocean. And I was so out there, but I didn't even know it. And I was about to be taken down. You know, now being recovered, I talk to newcomers or people coming back and they share with me that in their relapse, 
you know, they started doing things that they never did, that the food took them to a depth that they never experienced before. And I knew, I just knew to my bone that that was going to happen to me and that this was my higher power giving me a warning call. And I've just learned over these years, you know, I have to listen to that. I have to listen to that. So I got online and I was blown away when I heard a vision for you. It was the same sensation when I went to that first AA meeting. I heard people talking about their food, but they were recovered. And then I heard newcomers sharing where they were with the food and the questions that they would ask. And then I would hear the answers. I never heard any of this, not even when I had gone to that treatment center, you know. So, um, I listened and listened quietly, and a really big day happened for me when I introduced myself. You know, they say, is there anyone that's new? Oh, my gosh, I could feel my higher power saying, speak up, speak up. So I unmuted the phone, and I said, you know, I'm new. My name is Lisa. I'm in South Carolina, and I got, I want to say, maybe 25 calls. And it was amazing. Something began to happen. The momentum was beginning to happen. And all of you beautiful people called me. And you were so warm and so welcoming. And one day I was coming in with groceries. And I was getting overwhelmed with all the calls. And I said to my husband, oh, my gosh, I might have made a mistake. I introduced myself on that phone line. And the phone just keeps ringing. Well, the person, the next person that called me, you know, was soon to be my sponsor. And um, she, I loved the way she talked to me. She was kind. And she talked only about herself and her experience. She didn't try and tell me, you know, what I needed to hear or what I needed to do. She would always bring it back to herself and what happened to her and, you know, what she was like. And I love that she shared so honestly about the despair that she felt when she was in the food that she wanted to go to a psychiatrist, you know, for help, and she was just desperate. Well, before I talked to her, I was still thinking that this is all maybe good for you guys, but I'm not that bad, and I didn't show it in my body. And hello, I'm 10 pounds underweight because of my heart surgery, you know, but all along I could feel my disease, you know, plodding out. And I was still medicating with the food, the heavy starches, And I almost was giving myself permission to binge on, you know, rice and potatoes because, hey, I need to put on weight because I just had heart surgery. You know, and I could tell that the next step, you know, would be something, something so deadly for me. So anyways, I asked her to be my sponsor and she wasn't available. So I said, what can I do? In the meantime, and she gave me some suggestions, you know, certain special editions, keep reaching out to get a sponsor, you know, make calls. And I just kept listening to the meetings. And eventually um, she did have time and she took me through the doctor's opinion. And everyone kept saying to me, you have to take, have someone take you through the doctor's opinion. I was like, the doctor's opinion? What is this thing with the doctor's opinion? I had never read the doctor's opinion. Well, when she read with me, or I read, and then she would share and I would share, the doctor's opinion, it just blew my mind. It answered all of it for me, that I have a physical allergy just like an alcoholic. And even though that sounds so basic and I had been going to AA meetings, I never met anyone in whom the problem had been solved. So I began the process with her and I got entirely abstinent, you know. And that was uncomfortable because I had never been entirely abstinent. And I got a dietitian through my sponsor and I, 
um, weighed and measured my meals. And I saw so many new things, so many new aspects of this disease. And I saw that I am in a race against time. That the longer I am abstinent only without these steps, I will pick up. So we worked. We worked consistently through the book. And I did my fourth step and my fifth step. And then we went right into six, seven, and eight, and nine. And I worked on my amends. You know, my father had passed. Um, I found a way to make financial amends to him, and I'm still paying it slowly. Um, I wrote a letter to him. I shared it with my sponsor. I shared it with other uh, recovered fellows. I shared it with my higher power, and I read it to my father. And I prayed and I prayed, and I found an organization that felt right, that I could make monthly payments as donations in my father's name, you know, to repay that debt. And it's going to continue to take me time. I made amends to my mother who passed, you know. My mother, when she got very sick with rheumatoid arthritis and she got on a fixed budget, well, I had so much resentment to my mother, I didn't want to send her money like she needed, you know. And um, I was so selfish, so angry and so selfish and so misguided about my parents. Um, So I made amends to my mother and I I do a forgiveness prayer. Um, It's like a sick man's prayer, but it's a little bit more in depth. And I do that on a daily basis to so many people because me, the compulsive overeater that I am, I have such a sticky mind about resentments, you know. Um, I hold on to resentments for a long, long time. And um, I really love this freedom from resentment prayer that I do, and I still do it on a daily basis towards my mother, my father, um, you know, so, so many people, so many people. And that has given me a lot of freedom. But I've made financial amends. I still make financial amends to my mother. And I make amends to my parents by being the person that I know they wanted me to be. You know, they did not want me to be such a selfish, scorned, bitter person, you know. Um, another thing that came up for me in the amends process was in doing the 10th step, um, I realized I was resentful to God for taking my brother. And I didn't know that I felt that way, but it came out in a 10th step. And I, I didn't know what to do about it. And I called a recovered fellow, and he asked me a question no one had asked me. Have you ever thanked your higher power? you know, for your brother. And I realized I hadn't, but I didn't really want to have the gratitude. And I realized that a part of my disease had the blanket pulled off of it. But that's what my disease does. It holds on to self-pity in the most insidious ways, you know. And I have to be willing to let go of those things because that's an excuse for me to pick up. And that's what my disease does. It holds on to things It stockpiles them and later tries to bring them out as excuses. And my sponsor, you know, worked with me very closely, and she shared with me once I made my first amends, Lisa, this 10 step is going to save your butt. And she shared with me that she had completed her 9-step amends but didn't want to do her 10-step and picked up and had to go all the way back to the beginning. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I do not want to do that because I'm telling you, I worked really, really hard on those steps. And it's like one of our co-fellows says, you know, I worked like my hair was on fire and I worked like my life depended on it. And I still do. And I did not want to go back, you know. So... 
I started realizing that I was holding onto this thing in the back of my mind that I'm not like you guys. I don't really have to do 10 steps the way it says, you know, in the big book. And I got myself into a jackpot and I wanted to eat, you know, I wanted to eat. And that's when I saw that this is not a joke, that it's really laid out so clearly. And I follow the direction, you know, I do work a 10 step where um, the minute I'm disturbed, I do ask my higher power to remove it, and I go through in my head, you know, what are my character defects? You know, where am I being selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and fearful? I ask for it to be removed, and I do share it with another co-fellow. Every so often, I use my higher power as my, um, you know, step 10 buddy. But I really like, I love to just do it the way it says, and I get such relief and such freedom with that. And, you know, I'll just share that I thought I had made all of my approaches in my ninth step. Many of them I'm still paying off slowly, but I have made all of my approaches. I recently uncovered another one in working with a sponsee on her um, ninth step. I uncovered that I've been dishonest with the tax department here, you know, in my hometown, and I lied to them for years about my taxes. And I needed, I had to call some other co-fellows, get some direction, pray about it. And um, I did go and make direct amends to them. And that was an amazing experience. I felt like I was levitating off the ground, you know, on the way home. And I did make the payment. And um, I did break my anonymity and let them know that I am in a program of recovery and that it's of vital importance that I clean this up as very best I can. I, I know I was wrong to do it and God willing I will not behave that way again and I made the repayment. I've done that with employers that I've stolen from um, here in where I live and in Florida. Um, I've done that. I've made amends to my sister who won't really talk to me which is really sad. When I went away to treatment to get well, you know, my sister felt that I had abandoned her like everyone else and um, when I needed to write the letter of amends to my sister, I had a because she didn't want to talk to me and she was in another state far away. I had to really pray. Next the thing I just wanted to share before I'm winding down here. Um, you know, I just wanted to share that I need to pray on a daily basis. God, show me how I have harmed other people. Even though I feel like I've finished my ninth step, I'm never done. I keep uncovering. You know, in doing the writing of this work, um, to do this talk, I uncovered these drugstores that I stole all that candy from as a kid. You know, I need to put that on a list now and pray about making amends for that. But I'm never going to be finished with these steps. Every day I need to pray, God, how have I harmed others? Show me. I pray for an open mind and a new experience. You know, what is it I need to see? And I did that with my sister because I couldn't see how I had harmed her. And suddenly her face began to come into my mind of memories of turning my back on her, you know, things I said to her, things that I saw in myself. I said to her once on the phone, you are hard-hearted and callous. Well, I was talking about myself, not her. And I needed to go to her, you know, and put, well, I had to put it all in writing. All of this was covered in a letter of amends to her, but it was done prayerfully through my higher power performing 
spiritual surgery, and I'm borrowing that from someone that shares it on our meeting, that's what happens in these um, these uh, nine steps and ten steps, you know. And the thing is, I remember saying to a recovered fellow when I was active in the tenth and eleventh and twelfth step, I said, wow, these steps, ten, eleven, and twelve, they are really hard. I thought four and five were hard, but, you know, 10, 11, and 12 are hard. I mean, they're good and they give a lot of joy, but they really take, it takes commitment, you know, and dedication. But that's all my higher power. It's never me. It's just my higher power working through through me, you know, to do it every day. Like my life depends on it. Like my hair is on fire, which leads me to the next thing, which I'll jump to step 12. I cannot tell you how vital that has been for me. Um, My sponsor gratefully shared with me when I first started working with her that I need to call newcomers and share with them what I'm doing. And she said, let them know you're not recovered, but let them know what you're doing and that you have hope and share that hope with them. And I did that. I would do that, you know, with them. And that habit stayed with me on into recovery, I do call newcomers on a daily basis, even though I'm really busy. And even on sponsoring people, I call newcomers because they are helping me more than I'm helping them. And I just want to read in Bill's story um, where it says here on page 14, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. And that's like written on my soul. That's only my higher power that has done that. That's not me, because I, that's not me. And you know what? It's inconvenient working with others. I can't set up parameters and say, I'm going to control, you know, I'm going to work with just one person and, well, this is just me. This has just been my own experience. I, I'm, you know, I can't just say I'm just going to work with one person so that I can still have time for this, this, and this. It never works that way. I found I need to really actively work with newcomers, be in the trenches with them, and then work with my sponsees that are going on through the steps. I just need that because the denial and the ego in me comes back and it is such a joy to be taking people through the doctor's opinion, through Bill's story, through there is a solution, you know, more about alcoholism and how it works and into action and all of that. It's such a joy to be relearning through them and that's how I've deepened in the steps. You know, um, I remember my sponsor sharing with me, she said, wow, you're 11th step nightly review has gotten so much more thorough. That's because I was taking through, um, a sponsee through her 11 steps. You know, and when I take them through their amends, the same thing, new amends that I need to make come back to me. And on the other side of that is so much freedom. And the other thing I'll just share is the thing about my higher power. You know, when I was working in these steps, I didn't understand them a lot. I didn't really have a full grasp of step two when I was in my fourth step, but I just kept going. When I was in my eighth and ninth step, I went back and re-looked at step two at a deeper level, and I could see 
like these veils and cobwebs were removed, like these big boulder blocks were removed because I was getting unblocked. And that's why I need to be working with others because I keep getting unblocked and going at deeper levels. So it's all in the building of my spiritual life, you know, that happens in working with others. And I sometimes get frustrated, you know, when I talk with other fellows that I work with. I have to let it go. They have to go at their own pace and I'm powerless, you know, I'm powerless over that. And I know I get what I get when I'm ready. I remember once my sponsor sharing with me because I had not made my amends yet to my husband. And she shared, Lisa, I'm a little concerned. You still have your amends to your father and your husband. You know, and she had, she did give me a good suggestion when I started with my amends. She did suggest that I wait a little bit before I do the amends to my husband. And I'm really glad she suggested that because as I kept doing amends, I kept getting more and more unblocked and more and more clear so that by the time I did go to my husband, you know, I I really felt ready. I felt ready. And that was a super powerful experience, making that amends to my husband. And it went back many, many years that I had to cover with him. And I need to make, I needed to make amends to his son who has a mental illness. And that was really, really, really hard to do. Um, but it was a miraculous experience. And then I'll also just share, too, um, oh, my gosh, let me see, it left my mind, which means I'm, oh, I know, no, that wasn't it. Oh, darn, it left my mind, but it must mean I need to stop now. So hopefully I wasn't a total blabbermouth. I cannot believe how easily I was able to talk. I was so anxious about this, and I hope I didn't put you all to sleep. Thank you for your service and for listening to me. I pass. Thank you so much, Lisa, for giving so much of yourself this morning. Thanks for sharing your path from the dark world of compulsive overeating and brokenness to a life of peace, fulfillment, and purpose. Thanks so much. Lisa's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And now we're going to transition to questions. If you have a question for Lisa, please press star 1 to unmute and announce yourself. Can you W San Diego? Hi, this is Margie from Minnesota. Good morning, Mary Lee in Oregon. All right. Let's start with that trilogy. I believe the first name I heard was Ginny W. Is that correct? Jamie W. Jamie, go ahead. Thanks, um, Leah, and um, thank you, uh, Lisa, for your for your share this morning. Question: When you said that your eleventh step was more thorough than before, what do you mean specifically, and in what way has that helped you? Oh, thank you so much for that question. That's a great question. Well, um, when I go to the big book, um, and this was, you know, was working with my sponsee, because I'm working closely with her and sharing with her my experience, strength, and hope, and what these words in the big book mean to me, um, I was getting a deeper understanding. So when I go to the big book, um, let's see here. on page 86, you know, it says, when we retire at night, we construct and review our day. And then it goes through a series of questions. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest? So, you know, what I had been doing with my sponsor is I would email her 
um, my 11-step nightly review, which covered these questions. And I think the big thing that came for me that made it more thorough is, um, you know, where it says, um, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So I heard myself reading that and going over that with my sponsee, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't really do that very often, you know. And my sponsor had suggested it to me, but I just, I don't know, I just didn't listen or didn't pay attention to it. But when I was working with my sponsee, I heard myself sharing it with her. And, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So if I'm asking someone to do something, I have to say, well, am I doing that? And I found you know, when I would do my nightly review and um, pray, I would get some guidance from my higher power, you know, in what corrective measures I could take. So I hope that helps you. Thank you, Jamie. Margie. Hi, this is Margie from Minneapolis. Um, Lisa, thank you for sharing. I I am sorry to butt in here, but I am with uh, Unity Intergroup, and we are doing a sponsorship workshop. And I vowed that I would have four people on a panel discussion about sponsorship. And I don't know any vision for you people. So is there anybody in the Twin City area with 90 days of abstinence who could contact me so I can um, put them on for the sponsorship workshop, which is on the 18th? And if you go to overeaters.org, you can get the information there about me. I'm the public relation outreach person, so you can contact me there. Um, for Thank you, Margie. Thank you. Uh, your number, please. 612-670-0635. Thank you and very Lisa, much. I loved hearing your story, so thank you very much. Thank you so much. Mary Lee R., your turn. Good morning, Leah and Lisa, and thank you so much for being of service. Um, I initially also wanted to ask about the 11th step, and I think it's my higher power's way of saying I really wanted to know more about increasing the depth of your second step. So thank you very much. This is Mary Lee in recovery just for today in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you, Mary Lee. Who else has a question for Lisa this morning? Please, star one, to identify yourself, including the first letter of your last name, please. Anita J. Anita. Marjorie G. Leslie M. I got Leslie M. Who's before Leslie M and after Anita? Marjorie G. Marjorie. Okay. And there's someone else. Sylvia L. you. Kelly K, New York. Kelly K. I Jody. am Jody, got you. Sylvia? Oh, thank you for your patience. That's who I'm missing. Sylvia, what's the first letter of your last name? L from Pennsylvania. L. Okay. So let's start with Anita J, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, Leah. Hey, Lisa B. Marvelous story of um, transformation. And I have a question that had been asked me and I thought I'd love to hear your answer. And that is, you know, these parents of yours, these imperfect parents and how you had to make amends. 
have they become more real? Can you see now positive in them that the um, that the resentments have blocked from you? And with that, I'll pass. Oh, that's a beautiful question. Thank you so much, Anita. That's a really, really beautiful question. Yes. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, it's, you know, my sponsor, when I first started working with her on these issues, you know, she would remind me about not getting into morbid reflection and that I'm not that person anymore. Um, that I was a very sick person, very misguided, very fearful person. But yes, I see so clearly, you know, and I didn't share on this too much, but my mother had a very traumatic childhood and was devastated from her childhood and never really had any chance of, well, she just never dealt with it. So she was a very fearful person. So what happened for me is I picked up on all of her fears. And, you know, my dad... Oh, my gosh. My dad was like one of those guys from that that TV show Mad Men. You know, he really was. (laughs) That's the, you know, that's the era he grew up in. I love my dad so much, and I'm so grateful. And I just, as a tribute to my dad, I just want to say, you know, my dad taught me to be a very hardworking person. He told me to be responsible for myself and not just, like, live off of other people, but always to be supportive of myself. He taught me... He put me through college. Um, he taught my mom taught me to be honest and kind to people. I remember her saying that. I remember them both teaching me to always look at people in the eye when you talk to them. They taught me so many good things, and I just never could see all the good in them. I just saw all that I didn't get, and that you know they didn't measure up, and that's that's healed up inside of me as a result of not only the amends to them but all of the amends in my whole life because now I realize that everything is connected. Everything is connected. Everything. When I steal from, you know, a store, you know, that is, that's hurting every, every part of my life. And how can I fully love someone when I have this secret that is not completed and made right? Do you know, it just takes me out of the moment when I'm not, when I have all these things un that are not made right. And that's what the the steps have done for me and continue to do. And I feel my father around me, guiding me. I felt my mother with me this morning. Um, you know, I heard her say to me this morning, oh, that was a decade of hell, you know, when we moved to Florida. So anyways, I pass. Thanks. Thanks, Anita, for the question. Marjorie, your turn. Thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. My question has to do with step nine. Was there an experience or an a need or a need in you for amends toward your two brothers? And then with respect to your sister, you wrote the letter. Did you send the letter and what was the outcome? Wow, those are such great questions, and they're such happy answers, so I I love sharing about it. Very um, wonderful outcomes, which is not always the case, you know, because I'm doing the amends to clean up my side of the street, and there are people that may say, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you, but I've, you know, I've done my part. So in answer to my sister, she did receive the letter, and she sent me a beautiful card, 
And the letter uh, was, I felt was very thorough. I felt really, I, I prayed on it, covered everything as best I could. And um, she got the letter, wrote me a card back, and in the card she said that she has been sleeping with that letter under her pillow and that it, she reads it and rereads it. And every time she reads it, she says, I feel walls of just pain and burden falling away. And um, she thanked me. Uh, she also sent me a really pretty picture to put on my wall to think of her. Now, I've tried through prayer guiding me, you know, to reach out to her and to still talk with her. And, you know, she's shared with me that so much time has gone by that she just is really not comfortable having a close relationship with me. And I do that freedom from resentment prayer often for her. And I, I really get enjoyment praying for her that she would have everything that I want for myself because I love her so much and I want her to be happy, joyous and free. Even if I don't get to like, you know, share that with her and tell her that, I still want it for her and I try and send it to her in prayer and I just give it to God, you know. I would like to be able to have something with her, but it's just for whatever reason today not there. In answer to um, my letter to Steve that had died, I did write a letter of amends to him because um, I did turn my back on my family for a number of years. I just found it difficult to be around them all. And um, that was also why my sister was so pained with me. Um, But, you know, he always said to me, I understand. He would always say, I understand. You know, I know you've been struggling with this. But I still did turn my back on him. So I did write a letter of amends. And um, I shared it with my sponsor. She, She felt that it definitely did cover everything in the ninth step it needed to. I read it to my higher power. I lit a candle. But I also found this guy at an AA meeting that reminded me so much of my brother, and I did read it to him, and that felt really good. Um, and I so I feel complete with my brother, Steve. My brother, Jeff, who's still alive, I did do a face-to-face amends with him, and um, I let him know that I have been so selfish. You know, he has two beautiful children. He is a beautiful father. He's he has done an amazing job with his family. And for so many years, I was so self-involved, so self-involved, no role in his children's life or in his life. And I, you know, the thing I've learned with amends that is so important is to let the person know that it must have been painful to be on the end, on the receiving end of that treatment, you know? And I think that's what, clicked with him I think that's what touched his heart because it's like you're finally being heard you know and that's what I felt like he felt with me that I was finally hearing him and seeing him and that that must have been just so painful to have a sister you know not be a part of your life or your children's life so I hope that answers your question I feel like I'm going into such long answers but (laughs) does that help you it's wonderful very helpful thanks Lisa thank you Thanks, Marjorie, for the question. Sylvia L. Hi, this is Sylvia. I want to thank you so, so very much from the bottom of my heart for that chair. You have put things into such perspective for me. You have no idea how you touched and changed my life. Um, I'm struggling with food, and I realize I have to go through those steps before I do anything. 
And I just want to ask you, your life parallels mine in so many, in so many ways. I, I'm not crying over here. Um, I want to ask you, how hard was step one for you? I'm just on step one. I have a step sponsor now. How, how hard was step one for you? Oh, Sylvia, thank you so much for your question. And I'm so glad that you're here and listening. Um, step one was surprisingly really hard. You know, me, I thought, I thought that I've been going to AA all these years and I went to a treatment center. And, you know, the other thing is my sponsor, when I met her, I think she shared that she had been going to OA for maybe four years, you know. But I heard in her a level of recoveredness, if that's such a word, a level of recovery that I had never heard before. And um, such a clarity and understanding of who and what she is that, I was grateful to be working with her. So when we went through the doctor's opinion and Bill's story, it was really painful, step one, because the denial was so insidious because I kept thinking, well, I don't look like, you know, I don't have a lot of weight. Um, And I had that heart surgery, so I was underweight. Um, And I haven't had a binge like that time before but you see that's the disease it waits it waits if I pick up one of my alcoholic foods you know I may not start binging right then there you know but it will come because that allergy is triggered so what what made it hard for me and when I say hard meaning painful and a rude awakening was her shares she shared so honestly what food did for her and how she related in the big book and it was so focused on the big book it wasn't like she was the star of our hour together you know it was the big book was the star and she shared what happened to her and by her sharing so honestly it gave me permission to share and I started sharing very honestly you know what food did to me. And then I was grieving that I really thought in the back of my mind one day I would be able to have chocolate chip cookies again, you know. And I had to go through a grieving process of that. Also, I felt physically exhausted. I was exhausted the first few weeks of working with her. And she shared, you know, get your sleep, rest, because this is a mental, it's like a mental attack, you know, on the disease. It really is. And the steps are to be experienced. They really, really are. And that set-aside prayer helps so much. The other thing is like one of our co-fellows in recovery says, the fear of getting into the food has to be greater than the fear of losing the food. And I had that. I had that fear that if I got into the food, it would be like putting a weight on me and I would sink to the bottom of the ocean and die. I really got that. And... um so it was painful because the denial was there. For years I had been living in denial. So I hope that helped. Yes, it did. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Sylvia. Leslie M. Good morning. This is Leslie M. Leah, thank you for your service. And Lisa, thank you so much for your share. I really appreciate it. I was just wondering if you could... Um, um, talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you balance all the service that you do um, with your, you know, your work life, your your family, et cetera. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. That's a great, 
Great question. Well, you know, in the beginning when I first started working with my sponsor in these steps, I felt like it just like consumed my life. It was overwhelming. And I just had to let myself feel that. And I did get that this is life and death. And um, I just plowed through, you know, with her um, and not lingering too long in any one step. So then, of course, I know what you're getting to. You're getting to, like, working with others, you know, and um, making my calls and stuff like that, especially to my newcomers. I feel like when I work with newcomers, it's money in the bank. It's just, um, it's something I need on a daily basis. And I always say to them, you know, they're helping me more than I'm helping them. But um, so I have sponsees that I work with. But what I do with newcomers is I often will call and just leave a message welcoming them. And I let them know I am sure they're going to be getting a whole ton of calls and that it can be overwhelming because that's how I felt. But I let them know that I would love to connect with them. A lot of times they don't call back just because they're so overwhelmed. Sometimes I'll send texts. Um, back to them and I'll say, you know, um, this special edition helped me or I try to find out where they are in, you know, if they are a real compulsive overeater and I try to recommend special editions or just talk with them. Um, And then as far as the sponsees, I work with them, you know, during the week and on the weekends I have a few nights that I work with each sponsee and um, I try to have a lot of talk on the phone when I'm in the car. But, you know, so much of my recovery and making amends has been showing up in life, and that includes to my husband. So that's really, really important to me and to him. So I've asked him, you know, what what are the days of the week or what are the evenings? Well, first I asked him, what is the time of the day that you absolutely love to spend time with me? And then I don't schedule anything at that time with him. And then uh, I also had to explain to him that I, I, just like I'm mandated that I will eat if I don't do these steps, I'm mandated I need to work with people. And I've tried to share that with him. And he's not an addict of any kind, so it is hard for him to get it. But I know he's seen the change in me. His brother was a drug addict. And then he loved my brother. So he knows about addiction and that people die from these diseases. So he knows that. Um, And he gets it. He gets it that it's a service. But I've asked him, like, how would he like it to look? And then I've tried to do it uh, to the best of my ability that way. But it's not 100% because... I need to also be able to work closely with my sponsees. The other thing I love about sponsoring in Recovered um, OA and A Vision for You is that the focus is on the big book. In AA, I found my experience with sponsoring sponsoring and being a sponsee is they often were trying to be a life coach. I don't want to be a life coach. I don't have the skills of being a life coach. You know, I just really keep it to the big book and the steps. And then I try and put them out on their own. My sponsor used to always say to me, I am not your higher power. And that's what I try to pass on to my sponsees. Now I don't email my 11th step anymore, my nightly review to my sponsor. Um, I do it between me and my higher power. And I'm trying to also pass that on to my sponsees. Just that it's more and more about them and their higher power. So it's not so dependent on me. I hope that helps. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leslie M. Kelly K. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. Um, hi, Lisa. Um, thank you so much for your talk. I 
I I wanted to go, I wanted to expand upon like that step one answer you gave um, to that other lady. Um, I too like have a really hard time with the denial and, you know, especially because every time I pick up, it's like what happened afterwards is different. And it would almost be easier if it got worse and worse and worse because then I could see it, you know. I'm also crazily overweight and I'm pretty young. And I just, I wanted to know, um, I find myself constantly in mental obsession about everything else in my life and forgetting that this program is the most important thing. Um, And I was just wondering, like, how did you, how did you build, slowly build down that denial to really take that step one and how did you constantly refocus your mind to making this you know the most important thing because like my brain is so screwed up like I'm not going to be able to handle my life anyways right now until I get through the steps and like I just constantly I constantly forget all the time and I don't know do you have any advice around you know so that I don't have to go to the lowest of the lows you know, um, like what helped you to get, like, to sort of realize this? Yes, I do. Thank you for your question. It's a, it's a really good question. I know it will help other people too because it's common. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is for me, the mental, emotional, and spiritual devastation from this disease was the worst part. It was starting to get more and more in my body. I would have gallbladder attacks. and um, Also, the binge foods that I was eating that I could eat years ago now when I would have them, oh, devastating. Devastating effects like a true allergic reaction of digestive pain and all kinds of things with that. But it's the mental, the emotional, and spiritual. And the thing is that this disease is chronic, it's progressive, it's fatal. And I've heard it said that when we are in the disease, it is death on a layaway policy. So I I knew that I would just be lit, walking like with tombstones in my eye, even though, even though I would... Who knows? I could have gotten to be 500 pounds. You never know the way this disease progresses. But do I really want to live like that? So unconscious, blocked off, numb. The other thing is the food eventually stopped working for me at times. Um, Mm. Suicide. I began to think about suicide. Um, I don't want to live like that. I really thought that that it was just going to be as good as it could get. You know, years ago when I was going to AA meetings and was off of the sugar, you know, I was off of the sugar supposedly meaning not buying candy bars, but I wasn't really clean and going to restaurants and screening what I was eating. I thought that that's as good as it gets and I had no level of recovery. And when you look, you know, in the big book about, you know, Bill, I don't have the page in front of me, but he's talking about being rocketed into that fourth dimension you know, just me as an addict, I want to live in the fourth dimension. I really do. You know, I like to feel good. You know, that's why I ate because I was trying to feel better. But it just was killing me and killing me and killing me. I was blocked off from feeling joy in life. You know, being able to stand in the present moment, I was consumed with fear of the future and then remorse and regret of the past and resentments. 
never tapping into all the gifts that I am as God's creation. Like, what would God have me be? That is such a gift today, you know, to be able to live that way. The other thing is, you know, like we hear, I am powerless, but I'm not helpless. And ultimately, it does come down to me. You know, am I willing to do this work? Am I willing to say the fear of getting into the food is greater than what what food I'm not going to be having? You know, um, I also stopped tasting the food, too, the way my binges would be. I wasn't even able to taste. I would eat food out of the garbage or burnt food. That's where it ultimately will take me. And the thing is, it goes to a deeper level. It, it You can always go lower. There's always a lower floor. Like I thought, oh, it will get worse than this. It definitely can get worse. It'll get so much worse. And the other thing is, too, that I've learned, Life happens, it keeps happening. People die, people get sick, people lose their jobs. Um, sudden things happen. I want to be absent and be able to be recovered and handle these things, you know. Um, I, life is just going to keep happening. When I'm in the food, it doesn't mean that life stops. So I have to say to myself, do I want to be able to face life recovered, you know, or do I want to face it when I'm in the food? I'm totally useless when I'm in the food. So I hope that that helps you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I was wondering if at the end you can leave your number, if that's possible. Yes, I will. Okay, thank great. you, thank Kelly. You. And we'd like to get your number as well. All right, Jody EQ. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Lisa from South Carolina, for your wonderful share. My question, you've touched on the answer, I think, already, but I'd just like to ask you if you could share a bit more about how you have made amends to your husband. Thank you so much for that question. I I didn't really get to touch on it too much, and I was trying to wind the talk down, so I'm glad you asked. It was a slow process. Um, I was very, very unhappy in my marriage for so many years, you know, I kept thinking that if he were just a different person, I would be happier and um, I would be compulsively shopping, compulsively eating, and blaming him the whole time. You know, I thought, I have to do these things in order to be happy. These are the only things that make me happy, especially, you know, certainly the food. And um, I was so blind, so blind, just like I was really with my family so blind. Um, That selfishness and self-centeredness, I created so many of the problems. Um, I had to pray on a daily basis. Right when we got into step eight, I began praying, "Um, God, please open my eyes, open my ears. How have I harmed these people? Show me, you know, what do I need to see? I pray for the willingness to see, you know, I pray for the willingness to hear. I had to do that also in working with my sponsor in the beginning about my denial with the food also, you know. That prayer always helped me. So um, I started making my way through the amends, um, you know, to bosses that I've stolen from and friends and family. I just kept going on down the list. Oh, my gosh, well, he, my husband just kept looming, you know, at the end. And it was like, when am I going to be able to do this? And I just, I would go back and forth. I, I had to dig a little deeper um, in my fourth step. 
and um, really go back again and really look at my fourth step and the parts of self that were affected and the resentment and all that. I just kept digging and praying and um, that helped me a lot. And then um, suddenly, you know, I started seeing what I do to him. Oh my gosh, I just, I started seeing how I, I don't even really see him and how he is affected by me. And I remembered when we moved here, his father generously gave us some money, you know, to put on our house here. And then his father came to visit us and his father had his girlfriend with him and I didn't like his girlfriend. And I made it really unpleasant for them, you know, that they didn't even want to come back again. And I saw how that harmed my husband, that hurt him. And um, just what I did with him and his son, um, how I've been so dishonest with my husband about money, um, how I rejected his love. You know, my husband would try and tell me, you're beautiful. And I wouldn't take it in. I wouldn't feel worthy of it. And it's like the compliment would just bounce right off of me. And um, I shared all these things with him in the amends. And I said, you know, that must have been very painful for you to be on the receiving end of that behavior. Do you want to talk to me about it? And he started to cry. And it was just like years of pain, you know, about his father and how he felt like he couldn't, you know, family is so important to my husband. He loves his family. Whereas I come from get away from my family. I didn't want to be with my family and I was mad at them. You know, um, how that was so painful for him and how I wasn't a, a, a partner with him in the household. I still, I still struggle with that. You know, I have to pray about that on a daily basis. And then listening to him, really listening to him when he gives me a compliment letting it come in, Um, letting him love me, letting him be there for me and not feeling guilty and unworthy, Um, letting him be who he is, which is a flawed, imperfect person, Um, not demanding that he be so perfect and being so, if if he makes any mistake, you know, I would just come down on him so hard, you know, um, Gosh, just not letting him be scared if he needs to be scared or uncomfortable or not knowing an answer. Um, that, those are really what I needed to talk to him about. And uh, just the absence that I've had, you know, in so many ways because of my food and compulsive overeating. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Jody EQ. Lisa, it's now ten o'clock. Would you like to take a few more, or shall we I think wrap up? A few up? more. Okay. Marla. 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 Z. Marla. Z. Carla. Marla. Marla. Who else am I missing? Gina. Lisa Marla. J. Gladys L. Gladys F, Gina, and there's one more. Lisa J. Lisa J. Okay, thank you. Marla, let's start with you. Okay, hi. Thank you so much, Lisa. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Lisa, your talk was really helpful. I have, like, so many questions. Um, I'll just pick and choose here. The first one I have... um, when you do your 10 steps during the day, um, as things come up for you, um, do you always 
stop and write it down or do you sometimes just do them mentally in your own head and do you always call another person because I find that sometimes when I'm just doing my 10 step in the moment um, as it comes up that I can just process it by talking to God a little bit and, and if I feel like it passes I don't always tell another person about it do you, can you just tell me a little bit how you do your sort of spot check inventories throughout the day Yes. Can you hear me okay? Just because I moved to a different room. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, that's a great question. Well, I do find relief, yes, when I go to my higher power and um, ask, you know, for that uh, problem that I'm dealing with in my character defects to be removed and to have peace and guidance. I do. Um, but I can't, no, I can't always reach someone because I'm working or I'm doing something. Um, but I, I do that spot check. Um, where I'm, okay, I'm disturbed, you know, I'm disturbed, God, please remove this from me. Um, And I do in my head, I do go through in my head, I'm resentful, and I try to see what is the cause and the parts of myself. I do all that. I know that sounds crazy, but that's just what gives me the relief. My sponsor, when I first started doing 10 steps, would have me write them out, you know, just to get more clear. And the thing is that the 10 steps are so powerful because that's where, here's that term again, spiritual surgery takes place. That's where my character defects are getting removed and where the change is happening. So I really like to get as much as I can out of 10 steps. So in answer to your question, I do try and reach out whenever I can and I text people and I, you know, keep reaching out until I find someone. And I do often find people because I have a network. Um, And then other times I'm not able to reach someone and I close my eyes in prayer. I ask for it to be removed. And then I try to find someone that I can be of service to, either where I am. And if, I, if there's not someone there to be of service to, I try and um, pray for someone that I know that needs prayer. Um, but the 10 steps are vital for me. And some days I'll have like five of them. And then other days, you know, I won't have any. They're related often to my 11th step where I am with my higher power, you know, if I'm connected to my higher power. So. Okay, thank you. Can I ask you one quick other question? Is that okay, Liz? Yes. Okay, um, Lisa. When you're working with your sponsees and you're going through the chapters, um, do you have your sponsees read the chapters ahead of time and then come and discuss it together after they've read it, or do you actually sit down and read the chapter word by word together and discuss it as you go? Um, I have the sponsee read the chapter with me and um, sometimes I'll read and she'll read or she'll read mostly, and then we each share on it. I've heard people saying that they have them read in advance, but I haven't been at that point yet. I will have them listen to the special edition. Okay. Great. Thank you, and I won't keep asking questions. I'll call you some other time. Thank you. Thanks, Marla. Mara Z. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay. Um, Lisa B., thank you so much for your share and um, evidence further that God's timing is perfect. I have not spoken with my sisters in two years, and this morning I received an email from one of them reaching out to me. And so when you were talking about your amends to your sister, I was pretty much going through a box of Kleenex. So my question is, I I have previously made my amends to my sisters, and um, through hours of conversation with my sponsor in prayer, um, 
we have both agreed that I do not need to make further um, apologies, amends. Um, my question is, I am overjoyed with the receipt of this email, and I want desperately to have her in my life. I'm sorry. Did you have any difficulty with, did you have to deal with any forgiveness? I'm, that's the last piece for me as I'm having difficulty being very honest with myself of forgiving what has been done. And I'm trying to live in acceptance of who she is being exactly as she's supposed to be at this time. So I'm just wondering if you had any insights or could share any experience on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's an ongoing work for me. Um, Herb Kay is this guy in AA, and I really like his work. He's got this freedom from resentment prayer, and I do that prayer regularly for my sister because I do get angry that why, you know, why isn't she wanting to talk to me, and why is she still, you know, and it's just acceptance. She is where she is. It's all on God's timetable, and it's really none of my business. Um, she has a right to be, you know, who she is and where she is. So, yes. And um, that's why I said before that, um, and I share this with sponsees, that I often need to go back to freedom from resentment prayer, even if, like, I'm not even aware of a resentment. I I just need to be, that prayer is always there for me, you know, for my sister, even my mother. Sometimes something will come up. I'll be like, oh, you know, I'll get resentful again of my mom. And I'll have to do that prayer for my mom. So, yes, yes, it's been a painful process for me over the years with my sister. Um, and But you know what? I don't want to give my power to her because I've also experienced that where I've almost, like, groveled, you know, and begged her. And I just won't do that. I need to be an acceptance of where I am and where she is and keep praying for her. I find praying that she would have everything I want for myself. I pray pray that regularly for her, and that feels like a loving thing to do, but also ensuring that I'm not holding on to that resentment. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Maura. Gina. Was there a Gina that had a question? Perhaps I got. Um, good morning. No, you're. I just. I thought Thank I was going to be after Gladys. Um, this is Gina R. from Colorado. And Lisa, thank you so much. I think you may have just answered my question in your response to Maura. I was wondering um, if you would mind sharing with us the resentment prayer. But my sponsor also gave me the resource of HerbK.com, and it's amazing. So, But would you be able to um, say that prayer with us or not? Yes, I'll be happy to. Um, so I'll try and do it by memory. Um, but I, I like it because it consists, it covers a lot of the prayers that are in the big book. So um, I'll use my own name. So God, Lisa, Lisa is spiritually sick, just like me. Please help me to show her compassion, patience, and tolerance. Please um, enable me to release, oh, wait a minute. Please release this anger from me. Please enable me to release the resentment. Um, please enable me to stop clinging to this resentment. Show me how to take a kindly view of Lisa. Um, 
and then show me how I can be helpful to Lisa, enable me to come to terms with accepting reality. May I do thy will always. So beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Gina. Thank you very much. And now we'll move on to Lisa J. Sorry about that. I was having trouble unmuting. Okay. Um, thank you so much um, for that beautiful share. Really helpful uh, this morning. I come from a large family with a lot of siblings, and it was a real toxic environment when we were young. Um, and I've I've been doing my amends prayerfully, all of them very prayerfully, and um, I'm not having a lot of luck doing face-to-face amends. Um, and I'm wondering, at what point, I, I enjoy writing my amends because I I can be in more detail and it doesn't, um, it doesn't, you know, get the hair up on everyone's back when you're face to face. But I'm wondering at what point do you, do you, I'm, I'm beginning to think it's cowardice in most cases that I'm writing my amends. At what point do you, do you cross that, that line from a face to face heartfelt amends and a writing amends? Um, and thank you very much. Thank you. I, I, and I know the big book wants us to do direct amends, you know, whenever possible. I try to do direct amends whenever possible. Um, so I, I think it's important uh, to be in that face-to-face place, but covering it with my sponsor and getting guidance with my stepson who has a mental illness, um, it was advised that I not be face-to-face with him. Uh, so I did mail it to him, even though he's in the same town. Um an employer that I had here in Greenville, um, I did do face-to-face. I called her, asked her to meet me for coffee, and, you know, I did uh, do the amends. It's scary. It's hard. Um, my brother, I did do face-to-face. Uh, the tax office, I did do face-to-face. Um, I also stole food, you know, from depart like uh, Whole Foods and other food chains, and um, I my sponsor advised me to call the corporate office and let them know on the phone, you know, what I had done and um, what, you know, I did. it's vital important that I make this right as best I can. And they gave me a charity that they donate money to and that I then went into the store and made, the, you know, money, um, to, you know, to that charity at that grocery store. Um so, I mean, also with, like, department stores, you know, that I, I had dishonestly taken something and I never brought it back and I called the corporate office. But I think a sponsor's direction is key. Um, and then some employers down in Florida, you know, rather than drive down there, you know, I did call them on the phone and did that on the phone. But I think if we can do it face-to-face, it's really helpful. If you feel like you're dodging the bullet because it's uncomfortable and that's why you're writing the letters, you know, I would maybe look at that and take that to your sponsor and in prayer always, always in prayer and asking for guidance and the willingness to be willing. I hope that answer helps you. Yes, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa J. And our final question this morning comes from Gladys F. 
Good morning. Can you hear me? <clears throat> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, good morning. Um, thank you for your lead. I really enjoyed it. I just wanted more and more of it. Um, but in the beginning, you talk in your beginning, you talked about how you, um, you know, when you gave up like sugary junk foods, but you were still going to restaurant eating certain foods that may have had uh, the ingredients in it. Um, I have like a two two part question. I was just wondering, like, how do you deal with that now? Is that still still a part of your abstinence? And then the other question is, you kind of touched on it a little bit, is that uh, how did you, I'm on like my ninth step now, and like how did you uh, deal with the fears like of uh, um, making amends to like, you know, like IRS, you know, because I'm kind of, that's on my list too, you know. So how did you deal with those fears with that? Thank you for your question. In answer to your first question, uh, the thing with abstinence, that is so key. It's, I base my abstinence totally on the doctor's opinion, entire abstinence. You know, not if it has, like, if it's the seventh ingredient, then I can have it. I, I treat it just like an alcoholic does with alcohol. You know, they, they wouldn't have something that has, you know, like, a little bit of alcohol in there. I guess a good example would be if I'm a vodka drinker, you know, I can have wine. So when I go to restaurants, I really familiarize myself with the restaurant. I read the menu online before I go. I'll talk to the server. um, And I familiarize myself with what restaurants are safe. And that's been a real experience for me because I've always loved um, Thai food. And my husband loves Thai food. But uh, I have tried countless times to get really, really clean, abstinent Thai food. And I always get some sort of an exposure and just with the progression of my disease, the way it, it really affects me, it takes like days for it to get out of my system. And then, you know, the other thing is I recently had to add caffeine to my list. I, caffeine causes so much worldly clamor in my head. It's unbelievable. And I'm really disappointed because <laughs> I would have loved to have caffeine this morning, you know. Um, I can't rely on anything to give me that ease and effect and that's what I was starting to do with caffeine, even if I was just having it once a week. And then I tried green tea, and I, I just can't have any caffeine, you know. Um, so it's just being open and willing, prayerfully connected to my higher power. And um, so when I go to restaurants, I don't have uh, things that are questionable. I don't have salad dressings. You know, I bring, like, an olive oil, or I just have their olive oil, and... Um, Nothing with sauces, no sauces. I just found I can't do sauces. I've tried and tried, and it just triggers me, and it's so uncomfortable for me physically, you know, the way it makes me feel. And that's the thing. I feel so good. I like to keep feeling good, you know. I don't want to feel crappy. Um, And as far as the amends, for the IRS, I would definitely work with your sponsor and maybe some other fellows that have had an IRS experience. Mine was like a tax office here. Um, it wasn't the IRS, but it was still very scary because they had big penalties, and it was hard. And I prayerfully looked at it and talked, and I even um, talked to my accountant about it. And um, I did go, and it worked out. And even if it didn't work out, I still need to do the amend. You know, that's the thing. I've got to do the amend because I am an addict. I will eat again if these things are not addressed. That's just the way I'm made. My higher power wants me to be a clear and open channel, always connected only to my higher power, not relying on these other 
whether it's food substances or secrets and lies, I've, I've got to put everything out there and let my higher power be in there. And um, it does work out. It does work out. But I would get direction from people that have had that experience. And nine steps are meant to be scary. That's where the transformation happens, you know. I've been a coward so much of my life, living in fear and hiding behind my character defects and the food that um, the, the ninth step is amazing. That's why the promises come right after the ninth step and then the tenth step promises. But I just want to say to people, keep going. Don't stop. You know, I started to feel good and then I stopped and I thought, oh, this is good enough. But no, I have to keep going. So I passed. Thank you, Gladys, for that question. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Lisa B., for your generous spirit this morning. We appreciate your service. Let's close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.